Today, as we get into Revelation 21, Father, give us ears to hear and eyes to see, minds to comprehend, hearts with fertile soil, and feet that want to run with obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. What a journey we have been on the past almost year in the book of Revelation. And uh, there's been so much going on. And now the book of Revelation is coming to a close. We have chapter 21. We have chapter 22. Then we have a break of one week. And then we will have Revelation 22. And then we will have Revelation 21. And then we will have Revelation 20. And 19. And the series will be called Life in Reverse. <laughs> so um, it's, been, it's, it's just been a unique series. It's been challenging for me. And one of the things that I've been clinging to throughout the whole series is this, is it says those who listen to the word, those who obey the word, or those who read the word, those who obey the word, and those who hear the word, right? Read, hear, obey will be blessed. The only book in the Bible that says if you hear it, if you read it, and if you obey it, you'll be blessed. So there's a blessing, a promise that comes with this book. And I, I think our congregation has seen some of those promises throughout this book. Yet I have been challenged by the revealing of Jesus. Jesus is loving. He's patient. He's caring, he's kind, Jesus has standards, he has power, Jesus is king, he's worthy of praise, Jesus is coming back, Jesus will damn those to hell who are not written in the good book of life. And he, he now in Revelation 21 is ushering in his eternal kingdom on earth for those who put their faith in him. Uh, I don't know, a month ago, a month and a half ago, Macy and I ran into someone at Simple Coffee Com uh, Co. Company, downtown, the big city of Mechanicsburg. Um, and while we were there, a person came up, and this person always calls me Randy. And then about 12 minutes later, they then say, oh, yeah, sorry, Joey. <laughs> Every time. I'm like, I'm okay to be called Randy. Um, just, yeah. I'm okay to be called Dad Randy, not Randy Rose, right? Don't call me Randy Rose. We got an issue. Not because I have an issue with her, but that's a woman. I'm a man. And there's only two genders, amen? So... Oh, I'm preaching today. <laughs> oh, I need the uh, piano. Bow, bow, bow. Either way, we're down there, and what shook, shook our hand, and um, what this person ended up saying is, um, they said, hey, when you die, where do you go? Well, I mean, heaven. Put my faith in Jesus, and he knows this about me, right? He's like, but that's an issue that we're teaching the Christian church. I said, what do you mean? He's like, well, when we die, and then he says, oh, wait, sorry, I called you Randy, Joey. You're Joey. When we die, Joey, 
what Scripture tells us is there's going to be new heavens and new earth. So our destination is not this spiritual place. Our destination is actually here on earth. So when we think about our future, don't we often think about our future in the sky, in this spiritual place? Our future, according to Revelation 21, is going to be here. Isn't that interesting? Your life for the rest of eternity will be here. Nevertheless, there's some questions we have to ask about God's eternal kingdom. And the first question we want to ask today is this, is what will God's eternal kingdom be like? Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a a large, I heard, I guess it could be a large voice, a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. So the new heavens and the new earth is finally arriving. This is what you and I get to look forward to. This is what our final destination that we put our hope in. And what's so great about God's kingdom is this, about heaven, about the new earth, about when we receive the first death and we encounter the living Christ and we're written in the good book, this is what we inherit. Inherit, yes. So God's kingdom is physical, When we pass from this life into the next, it will be a physical kingdom. We will be able to touch and feel things will be tangible. Even when Jesus' disciples didn't believe when he uh, resurrected the grave, he's like, give me a McChicken, I'll prove it. Or it was a McFish. I don't even eat McDonald's, right? What is the fish sandwich called? And McDonald's. A filet fish. So Jesus is like, give me a fish sandwich, right? And he eats the fish sandwich after he resurrects the grave to prove that he has a physical body. See, when Jesus resurrected the grave, it just wasn't spirit. Amen? It was his physical body. Jesus died three days later, resurrected the grave, and to prove that to his disciples, he said, touch me, feel me, and give me a fish sandwich. I'm going to eat this to prove to you that you're not going to see it go through my body, that it's, that it's an actual process. So when we go to heaven, when, when we pass from this life and God creates the new heaven and the new earth, life is going to be physical. 
Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Earth refers to a physical place where there's people, where there's creatures, where there's plants, where people are here physically. Heaven refers to the physical sky, the sun, the stars, the moon, the atmosphere, etc. This helps us see that the kingdom that is coming isn't just a spiritual kingdom. Rather, the kingdom that is coming will be a physical one. And what we um, know heaven as now in the clouds isn't it. Heaven and earth will be a physical place that we get to dwell with God. Contrary to how Hollywood might depict heaven, it's completely different. Heaven will have mountains because Hollywood depicts heaven how? A big cloud with bright lights, with harps and things with wings. It's going to be different. Heaven depicts, or yeah, Hollywood depicts it as that, but heaven will have mountains. Heaven will have oceans. And you say, now wait a second. Revelation 21 Verse 1 says, there will no longer be any sea. So how will there be oceans if Revelation 21 just says there will be no sea? I believe this is referring to sea in a figurative way, right? Throughout Revelation, we have addressed the sea. And when we've addressed the sea often in Revelation, the sea would often mean um, evil or a fallen nation. So what's being said here is as we have this physical kingdom, there's going to be no more sea, which means there's going to be no more evil. There's going to be no more fallen nations. It's all going to be in the purity of Christ. So for the ocean lovers like me, we're safe because there will be water in heaven. Come on. And dolphins. And Macy swimming with the dolphins. If you know, you know. Heaven will have animals. Heaven will have sunsets. Heaven will have traveling. Heaven will have community. Heaven will be physical. Amen? We are almost, we are living in eternity, because we're eternity beings. We are eternal beings. So what happens is we will pass from this life, and God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth, and we come back. I think we're going to remember what Mechanicsburg was. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what it's going to look like, right? And what West Liberty was, and what Colorado was, and Russia, and Ukraine and China and South America, these things, I believe, will be present. Maybe they will all be together, right? Maybe they'll all be separated where they are. Who knows? But all of these things on earth, the animals, the plants, the people, will be in perfect form. Amen? Therefore, there's a logical conclusion. In heaven, we will have physical bodies. 
just like Jesus had a resurrected body, you and I will have a resurrected body in heaven, and it will be physical. Philippians 3, 20 through 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control. And what's this person going to do? will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Our bodies, our aches and our pains and our headaches, cancer, TMJ, whatever we have, right? Toes that cross. Anyone have any toes that are hugging their buddies. Sean Bay's laughing. He must have some toes that hug each other. <laughs> you can come up and show us if you like. <laughs> All these physical pains within our bodies, gone. You want to know why? Because what Scripture tells us is our bodies will receive, uh, will be transformed like his glorious bodies. How about this? Take us out. Some of us have loved ones. All of, actually, not some of us. All of us have a loved one, have a family member who's passed from this life. You know what they're experiencing right now? Their lowly body that was on earth has been transformed into his glorious body. Amen. We shouldn't be sad that they're gone. We should be sad that we're not with them because they're having all the fun. I mean, we got to worry about who, who's going to be the next president. we got to worry about this or that or job or Tina at work who really annoys us, right? Whatever it may be. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 44. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. So we are going to be raised with these physical bodies in heaven one day. So you may ask, what is heaven like? It's going to be physical. You're going to have a physical body. Heaven's going to be here on earth. And in heaven, we will have relationships. Verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So the holy city, the new Jerusalem, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. So in those two verses, God communicates three things. The first thing he says is this, is in the holy city, the new Jerusalem. So what do we know about cities? Cities are where people live. Cities are where people interact. 
Cities are where people work, where, where they play, where they grow together. So in heaven, there's going to be cities. But this time, in the cities, guess what? People will actually live in harmony. Um, in these cities, it'll be people who are completely redeemed. In these cities, it will be people who can enjoy life as they explore God's goodness. In heaven, we're going to be able to explore God's goodness. I know it might sound crazy to you. Yesterday, I made a phone call, and uh, I was walking while I was on the phone call. And then before the wedding, um, I was taking a jog. It was like a really nice, easy pace. And, and it was so humid. I was sweating a little bit, which I don't do often. And uh, sweating a little bit. And I'm like, you know what? In heaven, with a perfect body, with all of eternity to explore, I might be able to just run across all of the United States. Just not stop. Just me and God, right? Hey, Macy, um, I'll be home in just a little bit. Now, look, I wanted to keep you guys happy, so I didn't want to talk about uh, marriage looks like in heaven. I wanted to keep a church. <laughs> You're like, well, you already said it. Please tell me more. No, just go read the Bible. <laughs> I'll let the Bible speak to you about relationships in heaven, about marriage. But let's play fantasy for a little bit, right? Hey, Macy, I'll be back in just a few minutes. <laughs> Ten decades later, you know, when I get done, <laughs> just jogging the U.S. Ran down the Grand Canyon, ran to Texas, went up and explored California, visited Bethel, visited all these things, right, and then get back. And Macy's like, man, I thought you'd be gone longer. It's like, no, it's just a short time. In heaven, we're going to be able to explore things. Doesn't that sound fun? When God created us in the beginning of time, he wanted to dwell with us on this thing called earth. That's what he wanted to do. Where we get messed up is we think that God wanted to dwell with us in this spiritual space that is so ambiguous, right? There's certainly a spiritual aspect. But in the beginning, he created us in Eden to dwell with us. We fell short. And because of that, we've experienced death. He's going to redo everything. And now we're going to get to dwell on earth once again. In heaven, not only will it be physical, not only will we have relationships in heaven, we will walk closely with God. Coming down, down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Throughout Scripture, God's people are described as his bride. This is because God desires a very personal relationship with each and every one of us. A personal relationship. A private relationship. You know, there's things in your marriage that your best friend never gets to know about it, and that's appropriate, right? Amen? Not that it's, it's, 
we always take that to be like the weirdest thing. It's like, no, like Macy and I just have some jokes, that they're just our jokes to share. So if you ever see us rolling laughing in your presence, that's probably one of our jokes and we're laughing at you. <laughs> right? You don't get to know about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just know it's about you. It's not. Someone might be offended by that. It's not. And if it is, you just don't get a no, right? Because how many of you guys laugh at me every week when I try to read, right? How many of you guys laugh at me every week with something I'm wearing? It's okay. We can laugh at people. There is joy in the presence of God. Amen? All right. Still need that piano. Boom, boom, boom. Chad? <laughs> Either way, um, we will walk closely with God. We're described as his bride. We get to have this private place with our spouses. Likewise, God's calling us into this private place with him. God wants us as his bride to have secrets and intimate things with him that no one else gets to know about. Do you guys have that type of relationship with God today? Are there things that God has spoken to you personally that you have met with him in a private place that he's asked you to share with nobody? He's just like, hey, like, hey, Joey, this is just for you and me. As much as you want to tell Macy, as much as you want to tell the church, as much as you want to tell your friends, I love you so much and I want to have just a private place with you, this is just for you and me. That's a private place with God. Where God speaks to the deep things of your heart and your spirit, in your strength and in your weakness, and he speaks to you in this place that you've set aside for him as you're rhetorically walking on the beach holding his hand or you're cutting wood with him, right? Or you're shooting hoops or you're mowing grass with him. When God is speaking to you in this private place, there's things he wants to speak to you in a union and um, relationship that he wants to create. And what heaven's going to be is that private place that we've created with him here on earth, that relationship will only increase. And what I want to encourage you in today is to find that private place with him. He's better than you think. Find that private place with him. He wants to create it with you. It's not as hard as you think either. It, the private place is not as hard as we make it out to be. It's only hard because our heart doesn't want to go there. The private place is simple. What's really hard is saying, I'm not going to watch my TV show. I'm not going to mow my grass. Um, I'm not going to worry about tomorrow. I'm not going to worry about 10 years from now. That's what makes the private place hard. But how about this? You, you want to, I've become decent at multitasking. So when I jog, guess what I do? I try to jog with Jesus. So you guys are like, Joey, you're crazy. Why would you want to jog for the rest of eternity? Or why would you want to run across the United States? And I don't think I'm sharing too much now. Because I think that's a private place with me and God on occasions. 
I get to wake up and I'm like, I don't know why I'm running, God. And you're the only thing that's going to keep my heart beating. So, so then naturally, because you feel like you're going to die, you, you just minister to the Lord, right? That's a private place. So I can jog and be in a private place with him. I can mow grass. How many of you guys mow like this or like this? How many of these mowers do we have in here? Mark Miller probably still has one of these. Where's Mark? Yeah, Mark still probably has one of these. Some of you have this, or just some of you are still this. Bob Stoffer's got a double wide. You should see him mowing the church property. But um, it's pretty cool. When we mow, we can have a private place with God. When we're at work, we can have a private place with God. A private place is a heart position before the king that says, I'm here and I'm doing this with you. Amen? So when we go to heaven, that private place is going to be there. God is both eternal and personal. And because of this, we get to walk in intimacy with him. He's coming down out of heaven, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. There's this marriage that's taking place. In heaven, we will walk closely with God. Heaven is God's dwelling place. In other translations, this is said, heaven is God's tabernacle. But throughout scripture, we understand that this is where God will dwell and commune with his people. Yet in heaven, there is no physical tabernacle. Because God is there, and we will already be dwelling in his presence. So we're not going to have to go to a temple, a tabernacle. We're not going to have to follow a pillar or fire. He will be there in its fullness. So we will relate to him. We will experience him. And we will know him like we have never known him in this physical state. The best experience that you've ever had with God here on earth will pale in comparison to what every second will be like in heaven. Amen. It's like, Joey, are you, are you preaching a funeral today? No, this is the reality of what heaven is. This isn't a funeral. This isn't fake. And that's where I say, God, I believe, but help my unbelief. I just assume, there's an assumption, right? I assume that one day, because when we go to heaven, the history in our mind is not going to be wiped away. You realize that? When we go to heaven, it's not like we're not going to understand what our first life was like. When we go to heaven, we're going to remember. So whatever the new heaven, whatever the new earth will look like, I think we're going to remember some of it. But it's going to be in this form that we've never imagined. So heaven doesn't stop there. And I do want to ask the question. Do you want to go to heaven because you love Jesus? Or do you want to go to heaven because you don't want to go to hell? And that's how we find if we have a private place. 
Do you want to go to heaven because Jesus is there or do you want to go to heaven just to escape hell? That's preaching. That's a question that we all have to be able to answer. We are not a hellfire and brimstone church. We believe in hell. We obviously don't want to go to hell. But more than I don't want to go to hell, I think believers should want to be with Jesus because they love him, because they trust him, because they belong to him, because they are sons and daughters. Russell threw that question this week. Why do you want to go to heaven? And I challenge you that if you don't want to go to heaven because Jesus is there, you only want to go to heaven to escape hell, then God wants to blow your mind up with the relationship that he's inviting you into. Not only is Jesus in heaven, he's going to wipe every tear away. Revelation 21.4. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. No more death or mourning or crying or pain. In heaven, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for those things have passed away. God will wipe away every tear. That's a good reason to cry, right? Just let it out so he can wipe more tears away. It's not just talking about the physical tears that we've cried. It's talking about all the hurt and the heartaches. Every time you've been misunderstood, misrepresented, cut off, accused, um, anything that you've ever experienced, the loss of a loved one, being sick, being tired, being sick and tired of being sick and tired. Anyone in here today? Many have experienced hate that's going on in this world. Some have been abandoned. Some have been abused, accused, neglected, betrayed. How about this? Some have filed bankruptcy. Some haven't had jobs. Some felt like they weren't good parents or friends or kids. Some feel bad for things of their past. Some of us in this room even carry the weight of demonic attacks. Every tear will be wiped away. Every tear. Every. God is going to comfort us in a way that we only know ourselves. Um, the way that we've been made fun of and we've laughed it off because we didn't want to cry, right? Anyone in here ever been made fun of because for whatever reason you laughed about it instead of cried? Come on, somebody. Probably all of us, right? <laughs> Sean Bay's toes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> what are those? <laughs> so I won't be able to make fun of Sean Bay's toes in heaven. 
God's going to stop it. So every time I try to say it, it just won't be able to happen. <laughs> God's going to wipe those tears away. And God, but seriously, God's going to wipe away my tears because I don't like to offend people, right? And when you know that you've offended someone, it breaks your heart, and I think it should. God's going to wipe away those tears as well. What a good God. Why, why did he ever choose to create us? And this God who comes to serve us laid down his life to love us. And for the rest of eternity, we get to experience goodness. And only will he wipe away our tears. But he's going to heal us. How will he heal us? I think that's a hard question. I do not believe that it will be by zapping our memory, like in the movie Men in Black. You guys remember that? They had their nebula, whatever it was, nebulizer, and they just hit the button, and then everyone forgets what happened. And that's not going to happen in heaven. So how's God going to heal us when I have that hurt from whatever? I'm not sure. But what is clear throughout Scripture is God can reconcile all things. Every experience that you've ever had, every pain will be redeemed. But not only will he heal this pain, he will enable us everlasting joy. So after he wipes our tears away, the only tears we may have are tears of joy and love for life. One author says this, the most ordinary moment on the new earth will be greater than the most perfect moments in this life. Those experiences that you wanted to bottle up or hang on to but couldn't, it can get better, far better than this, and it will be better. Life on the new earth will be like sitting in front of a fire with family and friends, basking in the warmth, laughing uproariously, dreaming of the adventures together, and then going out and living those adventures together with no fear that life will ever end or that tragedy will descend like a dark cloud, with no fear that dreams will be shattered or relationships broken. You know, even in the best moments of life, we have fear. You know, people go on vacation, and then family members are like, oh, God, I pray that you keep them safe. Uh, Jackson and Ashley last night, you know, going to their honeymoon, and we hear family praying, safe travel. And we want that for them, of course, right? But there's still this hesitancy and this fear. Well, when we get the new heaven and the new earth, guess what? Ben gets to go hiking with the boys, and we don't have to worry about if a bear kills him or eats him or chases him. It's just, hey, Ben, you get to go. Bob gets to go boating out in the middle of the ocean by himself. Just peace. He doesn't have to worry about anchoring. 
because nothing bad is ever going to happen. Maybe Bob can even walk on water too. Who knows, right? But even if he can't walk on water, I mean, he's, he can't die, so I, apparently you can swim with the dolphins to the depths of the ocean. I don't know. But here's what I do know. We don't have to worry about the negative that could possibly happen. We are set free from all of that. How could this be true? God, I believe, but help my unbelief. Help my unbelief today. But don't you want this? Don't you want heaven? Don't you want to be with Jesus? Don't you want to be set free? Don't we all long for this presence and peace where we're set free from all of this? Anyone long for that today? I long for that. So if we long for it, if this is what we desire the most, may today we align our hearts with that. May we align our hearts and our actions with the rest of eternity, just not this ephemeral thing of life that gets us confused about I need this or I need that. Let's not be, uh, live under the spell of the Babylonian spirit of materialism and greed and lust and pride. And we say, God, I long for this heaven that is to come. I long for this new earth. I long to walk and be intimate with you. So I'm going to prioritize my life and my emotions and my actions in eternity. So how can we believe it to be true? How can we believe? Because... I think we all believe in the resurrection of Christ, but how can we believe that heaven's gonna be this good, that we're gonna walk here on earth, that it's gonna be a new heaven and a new earth for the rest of eternity? So how can we believe it to be true? God knows that we have that question. Go figure, right? So he answers this question for us. In verse five, he was seated on the throne, or he who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down. For these words, are tr uh, these words are trustworthy and true. He's saying, saying look, I know you, you have some things that you're wrestling through. You don't completely believe it. It seems unbelievable. But I am God who sits on a throne and I am trustworthy and true. God is going to make all things new. Everything will be in perfect form again. And the original language, this idea of making all things new, simply means this. New in quality or kind. Essentially, what it means is making it better. He's coming to make earth better. What God creates in the new heaven and the new earth will surpass anything that we have ever imagined. 1 Corinthians 2.9. But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have ever entered the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him.
Now, I think this verse can be preached multiple ways, right? There's a highly cliche version that we often use. Where we say, I see, you're down and out. No ear has heard, no eye has seen, no heart, no mind has comprehended the things that God has prepared for you. And there's this idea of the things that God has prepared for us is simply just on earth. Now, I do think that we can't comprehend all the good things that God has prepared for us on earth, too. Amen? God has prepared good things for every single one of us here on earth. I believe that. I also think what's going on here in 1 Corinthians is there's a prophetic declaration that we cannot understand the future of how perfect heaven and eternity will be in the good things that God has prepared for you. God has prepared for you things by which we cannot comprehend. And when we get to heaven, we're going to experience that for the rest of eternity. The old creation which had groaned under corruption is delivered by a new creation. Romans 8 19 through 23. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In that, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So the redemption in the book of Revelation is much broader than the individual redemption of a sinful man. It extends to the redemption of the earth and even the entire creation. Like new birth, the new creation is a work of God. So as humans who are under the dominion of physical death, you and I are under the dominion of physical death, right? Unless we get raptured or um, caught up in an individual whirlwind. But like new birth, yes, it's... So we're under a physical death, yet God um, knew we would have these questions. We're under physical death, and he knew we would have these questions since we're under physical death. What's going to happen to us? So he says, we can trust him. We can trust him. He is trustworthy. So God tells us to trust him. Verse 5, he was seated on the throne. I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So he's saying, you can't comprehend the things that I've prepared for you. Your bodies, and you can't comprehend this a lot of the reason why is because your body is under the physical oppression of death. 
So the book of Revelation is helping us understand that our redemption is near. And he says, this is going to happen. The book of Revelation is going to happen. You can trust him because he is trustworthy and true. Do you guys believe that he is that? Now, God is trustworthy and true. And Psalms 191 verse 89 says this. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. So what God speaks, it's finished. It's done. Amen? Titus 1-2, in the hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time. So God cannot lie, and the things that he promised will happen. He's trustworthy, and he's true. Hebrews 6-18, God did this so that by two unchanging things in which it is impossible for God to lie, which, sorry, we have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. So it's impossible for him to lie. Numbers 23, 19, God is not human that he should lie. Not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? God fulfills his promises. This is going to happen. The book of Revelation is going to happen. There is going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and our tears are going to be wiped away. Amen? So how will he make it happen? Verse 6 is, well, verse 8 is where we will stop. Verse 6, he says this. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost. From the spring of the water of life, those who are victorious will inherit all this. And I will be their God, and they will be my children. So this is how you inherit it. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and the liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So he says, do this. You inherit heaven. Do that. You experience the second death into hell. But what's important here is the water of life is an important phrase for us to look at. Throughout scripture, the water of life, the living water, is about redemption. It's portrayed in many ways. So Zechariah 13.1 says this, on, the day, on that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. So water... There's this water, this living water will bring life and purity to them. Isaiah 12, 3, with joy you will draw water, the wells of salvation. Jeremiah 2, 13, 
My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own um, cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And then we have, um, which you guys are probably more familiar with, John 7, 37 through 38. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. You also have the woman at the well, right? Nevertheless, The water of life is a symbol of God's eternal kingdom. This is something that Jesus has offered to everyone without cost. Living water, his living water to cleanse us, to allow us into heaven, has been offered to every single one of us free without any cost. This means that Jesus is offering you and I a free gift you know what's funny is you walk through the merchant's building at the fair. You get the bags and you just want free junk just because it's free. Free pencils, free squeezy balls, free triangle uh, highlighters, free trips to Cancun that no one ever wins, free water bottles. We like free stuff. And what Jesus says here is he says, hey, I'm offering the whole world a free gift. And the free gift is everything that we've talked about today in Revelation chapter 21, 1 through 6. Eternal life in paradise on earth, living freely with no more pain, no more suffering. You can't pay for it. You can't buy it. You can't do any good works to earn it. You receive it. And the best part is you can still get it even if you have committed horrible sins. You know, like when you go through the merchant's building, they're like, um, this is just for high school kids, like some of the certain free stuff. I'm disqualified because I'm not a high school kid. Or like this is just for pregnant women. I'm not a woman and I'm not pregnant. So I'm disqualified. Nothing disqualifies us from the free gift of eternal life that God wants us to have. No sin, nothing. Nothing disqualifies us. Think about the life of Paul or Saul. He was blood hungry, salivating to murder Christians, sought them out, separated them from their family, killed them, Imprison them. And what does God do with Saul? Saves him. Gives him a new name. Saul becomes Paul. Do we have any Sauls in here today? Think about Peter, a very disciple of Jesus. What did Peter do? Deny Jesus three times. 
Not only did Peter deny Jesus three times, he felt so much shame in his life after making eye contact with Jesus, right? After denying Jesus in his presence, he felt so much shame that what did he do? He ran from his calling. I wonder how many of us today feel so much shame in our life for a sin that we committed the past week that we've ran from his calling. Peter denied Jesus, and Peter ran from a calling in his life. Think about David, a murderer, an adulterer. And I would even say, possibly, possibly during a season of his life, a wimp. And you say, well, why is he a wimp? Well, when we read about his story, what Scripture tells us is, the season that men were supposed to be, or the season of war. It was the season of war, so people were fighting. Well, what was David? A king. Where was David? At home. Searching for the pulpit here. Leaning. Need to get a little bit closer. Where was David? At home. That might be, I'm not sure... I haven't heard that teaching a lot because when we think of David, what we think of David as is David the man who went and fought Goliath. But maybe there was a season where David was also a wimp. He's not where he's supposed to be. And th this, is, this is free real quick. If David was where he was supposed to be, he wouldn't have committed the sin that he committed. And if in your life where you're supposed to be, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, you're not going to commit most of the sins that you commit. Amen? Because if David's at war, he's dodging flaming arrows and cannonballs and donkeys, ravenous donkeys that they trained <laughs> to hurt people. <laughs> right? That's the rumor. They injected people or donkeys with rabies and <laughs> yeah, more likely than cannonballs. If David was where he was supposed to be, then he wouldn't have been lusting over Bathsheba. Either way, David was at least a murderer and an adulterer. And where we will stop today um, is this idea of the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross lived a life that was not godly. And I want to read you his story. Matthew 27, 32 through 44. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon. And they forced him to carry the cross. They came to the place called Gargotha which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of Jews. Verse 38. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. 
those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. Or let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. Verse 44, important. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. This is important. We understand these are two rebels who were crucified. By world standards, they were crucified for right reasons. Jesus was not crucified for a right reason. Amen. He was perfect. These rebels, by law, by rules of people's standards of society needed to be crucified. They deserved it. So they're dying because they weren't God-fearing people in this moment. They were thieves. And in their last moments, in the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. So the thief on the cross, who you guys know the story, we're going to read a little bit more here in a minute. Moments before they're dying, guess what he's still doing? Heaping insults on Jesus. Well, Jesus, if you were the king of the Jews, then you should. If you were this Jesus, or if you were that. Or whatever they were heaping and casting on Jesus in their very last moments, within a day, within hours, four hours, three hours, two hours, within 45 minutes of their death, both of these rebels are casting, projecting, and accusing Jesus, insulting Jesus. But Luke helps us see another side of this. Luke 23, 39 through 43. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the others responded and rebuking him said, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our crimes. But this man has done nothing wrong. Something changed in this thief. Moments before he's dying, something changed in him. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Moments before his death. Now when some people hear this story, they're like, you shouldn't preach this story because that means I get to live however I want to live and then moments before my death, I can tell Jesus I'm sorry and um, he'll save me. I don't know. That's a heart condition. Right? I think if we think we're going to be sincere at our deathbed, then we should just be sincere right now. 
And if we can't be sincere right now, why are we convinced that we will be sincere on our deathbed? It's a matter of the heart. This thief on the cross, so Paul was offered living water, Peter was offered living water, James was offered living water, David, living water, the thief on the cross, within moments of his death, was offered living water. What's important for us to always remember and always lead with is this. Jesus desires to offer this amazing gift to us for free. He wants to offer us living water for free, no matter what we've done. No matter the sin you committed this morning, no matter the sin you committed last night or this week or in the past, God wants you to have his living water to be with him for eternity. Because Jesus desires to give us this amazing gift for free, and why can he give it for free? Because Jesus is the one who paid the entrance into heaven. He paid the full price. But there's only one condition, is the gift is free. It's a free gift. It can only be given by, and it can only be given through Jesus. And the thing about it is this, is Jesus will not force himself on you. He's not gonna force himself on you. You have to accept it. You have to receive that gift. The world must receive that gift. Revelation twenty two seventeen. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without cost. So we get to experience this eternal life with God, this new heaven and this new earth in physical form for the rest of eternity if and only if we receive the living water of Christ and we come. The spirit and the bride say come. And let the one who hears come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without cost. So I believe what Jesus is asking every single one of us in here today is to come again. Come to him again. And maybe he's not only asking us to come to him again today, because there's, there's just some rebellious spirits in us, right? We're keeping God at arm's length. And what he's saying is, hey, come to me fully today. Put your arms down and come to me fully today. And maybe we're not coming to him again. Maybe there's some of us who need to come to him for the first time. Truly come to him for the first time. And what he's saying is, um, I believe that Jesus is speaking to the rebellious ones today those of us who understand we're falling short in some areas and we're keeping him far off, I believe what Jesus is saying is come home. Jesus is speaking to us today to come home. Come to him. To the one that is far off, he says, come home. To the one that is hurting today, he's saying, come home. 
To the one today who is sick, he's saying, come home. To the one today who has doubt, Jesus is saying, come home. Jesus is calling those who know there is more to come home. And God is calling those today who have never put their faith in him and repented of their sins to come home. Let's pray. Father, I pray today that we would come home. That you would align our emotions and our fears and our worries and our anxiousness, our sickness, our finances, our whole life, our whole being with yours. I pray that we would repent, Father, and we would just come home. Come home to you fully. Father, that that, um, that promise that you say that those who drink of your living water will never thirst again. I pray that we would never thirst again because of you, Father. Align our, um, align our life with you this week. May we come home and, Father, help our unbelief about this next life, about the new heaven and the new earth. In Jesus' name, amen.